O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Lord God, you alone are God. Your name alone is to be praised. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in your creation and in your word, the Bible. Thank you for the psalm of praise. And Father, as I preach from the psalm this evening, my prayer is that each of us will be a bit more amazed by you, that each of our hearts will be warmed towards you as we see you more clearly, as we see ourselves more clearly, and as we see your son Jesus more clearly. We ask this in his name. Amen. I don't know if you've ever seen Samuel Beckett's play, Breath. It's a 35-second play. There are no human actors. There's basically a pile of rubbish that sits on the stage. It's lit by a light that's dim at first, gets a bit brighter, but never fully so, and then gets dim again. There are no words. There is only a recorded cry at the beginning. Then there's an inhaled breath, an exhaled breath, and another recorded cry. Now, it's clearly ridiculous. <laughs> if you went um, out for a nice evening to see a play and it lasted that long, you wouldn't be best pleased. But this play, it raises the same question that our psalm this evening poses. What is mankind? How do we understand our existence, our purpose? Why are we here? To Samuel Beckett, mankind is rubbish. Rubbish that breathes momentarily, but rubbish nonetheless. Is that right? In many ways, when we look around the world today, and we see the mess that we're making of things, we might think, he's got a point. So what is mankind? And this isn't just some sort of nice philosophical question for a Sunday evening. Because how we view who we are dramatically impacts how we live our lives. Daniel Kubrick, who was the director of 2001, A Space Odyssey, said this, if man merely sat back and thought about his impending termination and his terrifying insignificance and aloneness in the cosmos, he might ask himself, should he bother to write a great symphony or strive to make a living or even to love another when he is no more than a momentary microbe on a dust moat whirling through the unimaginable immensity of space. He'd be a fun person to be at dinner with. <laughs> he goes on to say, those of us who are forced by our own sensibilities to view their lives in this perspective, recognize that there is no purpose they can comprehend and that amidst a countless myriad of stars, their existence goes unknown and unchronicled. What is mankind? What is our purpose? This evening we're going to consider from Psalm 8 what the Bible says about mankind, what our purpose is, what our nature is. 
And as we do so, we need to realise that any attempt to explain mankind without God is futile. Because if we look at the psalm, it poses this question, what is man? But did you notice how God-centred the psalm is from start to finish? God's the subject of nearly every sentence. If we look at it, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and have crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim in the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I'll take a breath now. (laughs) But you see how God-centered it is. And the reason why is that we cannot understand who we are until we understand who God is. John Calvin, the great reformer, put it like this, man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. So as we look at this psalm, we need to remember it is God-centered. But also let's see how it's, it's a psalm of praise and amazement. It's as if David in writing the psalm is thinking, I know these things are true, but I can't quite believe it. And as we look at these psalm this evening, there are three things that I want us to be amazed by. First of all, let's be amazed by a majestic God. So the psalm begins and ends with this repeated refrain. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So who's the psalmist talking about? It's O Lord. It's the one capitalized in our Bibles, denoting Yahweh, the name God gives himself in the Old Testament. This is not some vague notion of God, but it's a specific God, the God of the Bible, the one true God. How do we view God? So often I think we do it in a way that we like to think of God in a way that suits us. I used to like to think of myself as a great tennis player. Now, the objective reality was that I was not a great tennis player. I'm a distinctly average tennis player. And just because I like to think of it that way, that didn't make it true. And in the same way, us thinking of God in a way that fits our worldview doesn't actually make God like that. So, and how we find out what God is like is from reading the Bible, because God has graciously revealed himself to us in the pages of Scripture. And this psalm gives us a small snapshot. But what we see is that God is far more majestic, far more awesome than we can fully comprehend. Because here we see it is this God whose name is majestic in all the earth. At this time, Israel was one of many nations. 
But this is not just some local God. This is the God of all the earth. The one who has set his glory above the heavens. There's something incredible, isn't there, about being out um, in the country um, on a clear night, looking up and seeing the whole sweep of stars um, above our heads. And the kind of the more you look at it, it's almost like there seems to be more and more stars that you see. And then we turn to consider, as the psalmist does here in verse 3, these are the works of God's fingers. God is the one who set these things in place. What an awesome God. And then in verse 2, we see that this awesome, vast, majestic God, he uses what is weak and foolish to silence those opposed to him. Look with me at verse 2. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. It's a striking contrast, isn't it? If we think in Matthew 21, when Jesus enters the temple in Jerusalem, he drives out all the money changers, those selling in the temple. He heals the blind and the lame. Who is it that's praising him as God's Messiah? It's not the religious leaders. They're furious. It's a group of children. You see, the praise of God packs a punch, even if, or especially when, it comes from sources that we consider weak. In the American Civil War, there was a famous Christian general with a great nickname. He was called General Stonewall Jackson. He's considered to be one of the greatest, uh, most gifted tactical commanders in America's long history. Um, but a few years before the war, on the 22nd of October, 1854, his world came crashing down around him. His wife had given birth to a stillborn son, and then she suffered an uncontrollable hemorrhage. So in the space of a few hours, Jackson had gone from being a joyful, expectant father to a crushed widower. He was weak and broken. The next day he wrote to his sister Laura, who wasn't a Christian. His grief and despair was evident. He made no attempt to hide it. He told her he thought he could submit to anything if God strengthened him for it. And then in the middle of his note, there's this most moving one-liner. He says, Oh, my sister, would that you could have him for your God. Can you imagine that? Can you think of anyone weaker than Jackson at that moment? And yet, can you think of a more powerful witness to his sister than those words in that moment? Oh, that you could have him for your God. We are weak, but the God of all glory works through weak people to achieve his purposes. So let's be those who praise this majestic God to others. 
We're never too weak to praise God. Let's be amazed that God uses weak people like us to achieve his purposes. Let's be amazed at this majestic God. Secondly, we are to be amazed at our God-given dignity. Verses 3 and 4 says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? The story is told of Teddy Roosevelt. He was a former U.S. president and good friends with a guy called William Beebe, who was a famous naturalist of the time. Like most men, they enjoy spending an evening talking and setting the world to rights. But as it was getting late, they would often go out on the lawn and they'd look up at the starry sky and they would search for a particular point. Um, they would find the great square of Pegasus and down towards the lower left-hand corner of the great square of Pegasus, they would see a star-like light. And then Roosevelt would say this. He would say, that is a spiral galaxy in Andromeda. It is as large as our Milky Way. It is one of a hundred million galaxies. It consists of 100 billion suns, each larger than our sun. Then he would grin and say, now I think we're small enough. Let's go to bed. And that's the right response, isn't it? When we consider the vastness, the awesomeness of what God has made, and then we turn to look at ourselves, we see our insignificance, we see our smallness. But did you notice what amazes David here in this psalm? Is not his and our insignificance, but rather that God gives us significance. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him? You see, this majestic God who's made all things cares for us. We fill the mind of God. Isn't that astonishing? We fill the mind of God. But why? Why does God care for us? Isn't it ludicrous to imagine that if there is a God, and he's this big and this majestic, that he centers his interest on inhabitants of this tiny planet? Well, to answer that, David takes us back to creation. Back to what God has said in Genesis. Look at verse 5. You, God, made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea all that swim the paths of the sea. God made us in his image. He's given us the world he made to care for and to rule over. Not to abuse it, but to look up after it as faithful servants. 
He's given us this exalted position in his creation. Lower than God, but higher than the animals. Now we're not in this position because we've somehow been lucky that we've evolved to the top of the tree, but because we've been placed there by the God who made all things. Now in the eyes of the world, where does our dignity and identity come from? Is it from our wealth, our job, our appearance, our background, our education, our achievements? The Bible shows us that we have a dignity that doesn't come from any of those things. We have a dignity from outside ourselves, a God-given dignity. A dignity that on the one hand counters our feelings of insignificance and a dignity that counters on the other hand our feelings of overrated self-worth. It's a bit like where you were born. So I can hold my head up high and I can declare I'm Scottish. But I can't pat myself on the back as if I had anything to do with that. The dignity that comes with being Scottish, such as it is, is a dignity that comes from outside myself. And in the same way, the dignity of being a human being, of being made in the image of God, of being given responsibility over his creation, is a dignity that comes from outside. It comes from God himself. So what are the implications of this God-given dignity for us? Three things, I think. Firstly, in our relationship to God, we need to recognize that God is God. We need to stop living lives as if we were the center of the universe, as if we know best. The wonderful thing is that this all-powerful, majestic God cares for us. And therefore, there is no better way to live than with God as ruler of our lives. Someone far more eloquent than me put it like this. There is no higher human experience than to worship and serve the true God. There is nothing so enlightening and enlarging to our mind, liberating to our spirit, and nourishing to our soul than to really know, love, and enjoy the one true God of the universe. We need to say with the psalmist in verse 1, O Lord, our Lord. Secondly, in our relationship to one another, we are each made in the image of God. We each have that God-given dignity. So let's ensure that the way that we treat our fellow human beings reflects that. Both those near to us and whom we interact with daily and those further away whose lives we might impact only indirectly. And if we've truly grasped the wonder of this relationship with this one true majestic God, let's be pointing others to him so that they too can know that joy for which they were made. Thirdly, in terms of our relationship to creation, Christine and I recently went to London Zoo. 
If you've not been, I'd recommend it. It's absolutely brilliant. They have an adults-only night, so there's no screaming kids around. It's great. But one of the things that's really striking um, as you go around is the emphasis on how in many ways we are just like these animals. But this psalm says, no, we're not. Of all God's creation, only humankind is even capable of asking that question in verse 4, what is man? Verses 6 to 8 tell us that God has made us to be rulers over his creation. Now that means we are neither to elevate animals to the place of man, if you like, to care more for the dolphins than our fellow man, nor use our God-given responsibility to abuse what God has so wonderfully made whether that's indirectly through our indifference to the abuses that's going on or directly through the way that we live our lives. Rather, we are to be good stewards of God's creation. Let us be amazed at our God-given dignity and live it out. Thirdly, we are to be amazed at our restored dignity in Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but in thinking through those sort of implications, it kind of quickly becomes apparent, I don't do those things. Indeed, almost as we read the whole psalm, we sort of think, I just don't see it. It's got this sort of idealistic air about it. It kind of, it looks back to creation and the dignity that God gave to man but then we think, well, creation was quickly followed by man's rebellion against God. We know ourselves that we are more often the enemies of God pictured in verse 2 than the faithful rulers of his creation of verse 6. You see, our God-given dignity has been tainted by our sinfulness. We live in a world full of suffering, of abuse, of natural disasters, of death. And it can lead us to think, surely if God really cared for us, if we really filled his mind, then surely that wouldn't be the case. Is Christianity just some nice idea to stop us having to confront our insignificance and pointlessness? How do we know that Psalm 8 isn't just a pipe dream? Well, because of Jesus. Our second reading from Hebrews 2 reminds us. The writer there speaks, applying these words to Jesus. He says, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet, at the present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus. Notice what the writer's saying. He's saying, we don't see Psalm 8 fully fulfilled. But we do see Jesus. We failed. But one man didn't. Jesus. Jesus. God's son. 
He took our place. He lived the perfect life that we were supposed to live. He did what we should have done and paid the penalty for what we have done. And so Hebrews 8 is telling us, sorry, Hebrews 2 is telling us that Psalm 8 is not a pipe dream. We don't yet see it fully blown, but we do see Jesus. One man is already reigning. And so we have this assurance there will be a new heaven and a new earth under Jesus' rule when this psalm will be fulfilled in its entirety, when there will be no more suffering, no more pain, no more death. And if we're trusting in Jesus, we can look forward to that time when we will be fellow heirs with him. Because our dignity and our identity is restored in Jesus. Do we long for Psalm 8 to be fulfilled? Then look to Jesus, the perfect human, and trust in him. As we close, how do we view humanity? About 10 years ago, a Finnish teenager called Pekka Erik Avanen concluded that humanity was overrated. He said, I cannot say that I am of the same race as this miserable, arrogant, and selfish human race. No, I have evolved a step higher. His response. On the 7th of November, 2007, he went to school as he'd done a hundred times before. But that day, he took with him a gun. He killed seven of his fellow pupils and the head teacher in an attempt to eliminate all whom he saw as unfit, disgraces of the human race and failures of natural selection. How do we view humanity? About 2,000 years ago, the God who made all things looked down at the humanity that he had made in his own image to rule his creation. He saw humanity's sinfulness. He saw our rebellion against him, our arrogance, our selfishness. And his response? In love and mercy, he came down to earth as a man. He lived the perfect life. He willingly died so that sinful humans like me and you could be brought to glory, could have our sins forgiven, could be restored to that position that God had intended. We have been made in God's image to live in relationship with him through his son, to lovingly rule his creation. It is God who gives us our dignity it is God who gives us our purpose. We are to be amazed at our majestic God. We are to be amazed at our God-given dignity. And we are to be amazed that we have a restored dignity in Jesus. 
The psalmist saw the fulfillment of the psalm only partially. In Jesus, we see it fully. So how much more can we join with the psalmist in concluding? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Lord, when we consider your majesty, when we look at your creation, at the vastness of your heavens, the work of your fingers, Father, we cannot comprehend why you fill your mind with us, why you care for us. But Lord, we rejoice with the psalmist that it's true. Father, we thank you that you made us in your image to care for your creation. But above all, Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his humanity. We thank you that he died to restore us to you. Fill us with amazement, we pray, at who you are, at who you have made us, and at who we are in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.